God is attracted to desperation, it is also true that He uses only broken things. Pride resists brokenness, and our flesh resents being broken, but what God is trying to do, what He tried to do with Israel, what He tries to do with us, is to remind us that when the potter's house, they went and the vessel was broken, God did not throw it away, He remade it. And what God has to break from us is the facade of thinking that we have anything to offer Him or that He needs us. While we were at IMB this week, um, I was uh, reminded of people who have given of themselves and nobody knows their name. All over Twitter and Facebook and everything else, our name is out there. But I met a man who has been in Vietnam for 50 years as a missionary and nobody in this room knows his name. When we pulled out of the Vietnam War, he stayed and continued to teach and minister when the land went communist. I think it'll take eternity for us to figure out who the great people are in the kingdom. There are a lot of preachers in small churches that nobody knows their name that have been faithful and faithful for years. Nobody knows who they are. We heard a story this week about a pastor who's been in an area for 30 years. For 28 years of those 30 years, a missionary, one of our missionaries, no results, no converts, no church plants, just like a wall, hitting a wall constantly, constantly, constantly. In the last two years, several hundred churches have sprung up and thousands have come into the kingdom because he didn't quit wondering why nobody knew who he was. He stayed with the stuff. When it would have been easy to say, nobody appreciates what I'm doing and the gospel's not going to work here and I'll just leave and go where it can be more productive. It will take another life to find out who the great soldiers were. When a soldier is ready for an inspection, he knows he better be ready. You just don't get up when you want to. You don't clean it to the standard that you think is acceptable. You have to clean your barracks, your bunk, your shoes, everything to the standard that is acceptable to the one who is doing the inspection. And the question for the soldier of the cross is, are we ready for inspection? I've never been in the Marine Corps, but there's one thing I've understood about the Marine Corps. They'll break you. Grown men cry like babies the first week they're in because the drill instructor really doesn't care who your mama is or who your grandmama is or what you got, what grades you got in school or what kind of stud athlete you are. They don't really care. They're going to break you down to nothing so that they can rebuild you into what they want you to be. That's why not everybody makes it. Some people quit, some people leave, some people just don't make it, they're not cut out for it. 
Why do they do that? Because a man full of himself will never fight as a unit. He will only fight to protect himself. But when the Marines talk about not leaving any man behind, they mean it. And it takes broken men who are no longer worried about themselves but think about others that make the best Marines. One day we're going to be in an inspection. There's going to be a judgment. There's going to be an evaluation. It's not going to be what our Sunday school teachers said about us, about what our mama or grandmama said about us, or, or what our friends said about us, even what the church thought about us, or what the Christian community thought about us. We may think we're the greatest thing since skim milk, and when we get before God, he may say it's all burned up, it's just wood and hay and stubble. You see, the only evaluation that counts is when the chief inspector shows up. The one who rules and overrules and determines who passes inspection. And, and when we stand on that day, we will not stand before uh, Sergeant Carter and be Gomer Pyle. <laughs> That's not going to work. We're not going to be Beetle Bailey. I mean, we're going to have to be the soldiers of the cross. So how do we get ready for an inspection? How do we avoid enemy infiltration that keeps us from being ready and prepared for whatever comes our way? Well, we've talked about one of Paul's metaphors. Now I want to move to the second one. Uh, we obtain holiness, chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 20. He changes the metaphor here, and he's gone from a workman that does not need to be ashamed to a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself, there, in other words, we're personally responsible for cleansing ourselves. If anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now, flee from youthful lust and pursue Righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, these are some valid evidences of faith, of obtaining holiness. And in the previous verse, he talked about abstaining from wickedness. And he remember, he talked about two men, two men that had missed it, that had lost it. In fact, uh, when he talks about Hymenaeus or Hymenaeus or he's no man for me, whatever you want to pronounce his name as, there's all likelihood that this is the man in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that Paul turned over to Satan. Now here's a person that's inside the church that Paul has turned over to Satan. Why? Because he's off track. He, he is a ringleader. He is not inadvertently strayed. He's not stumbled. God has spoken and he has said, I'm not going in that direction. I've decided I have a new idea, a better idea. I want to think a different way. And so because he didn't inadvertently stray, he intentionally strayed away from the truth. Paul says, I've turned him over and delivered him over to Satan. Now, Paul talks about the utensils and the vessels in a large house, and he names three kinds, gold, silver, then wood, and then earthenware. And I, I believe that the large house refers to God's house and that God is looking for people to serve who are usable. 
but not just usable. They are clean utensils. In fact, the other uses of this word relate specifically to those who teach. That's why we have in our Constitution and bylaws that the pastor of this church or any staff member or any deacon or any Sunday school teacher, even of a preschooler, ever says that we don't believe that the Word of God is the inerrant, infallible, inspired, authoritative Word of God. We think that the Word of God has errors. They will be removed immediately from any role of leadership in this church. It only takes one cancer cell to kill a body. And so we have strict standards for who teaches and what people teach because the Word of God is our authority, not because we're unkind, but because we love the truth that much. And so God has given us a standard, and, and Paul uses this uh, chosen instrument in Acts 9, 15, that he was a God's chosen instrument to the Gentiles. Paul says, we have a treasure in earthen vessels in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, and the word translated instrument or vessel really relates to any kind of vessel. God is looking for vessels that he can use, utensils that are clean and prepared. No, notice that he says it must be sanctified or set apart. Now, sanctification has a twofold meaning. First of all, negatively, it's set apart from sin. There's a negative aspect to it. But there's a positive aspect to it set apart for God, from sin for God. To be sanctified is to be set apart from sin, not stained and tainted by sin, but also set apart for God, usable for God. Now, when you wash things, you know, people that sell dishwashers lie. You don't have to scrape this pan. This dishwasher is so efficient, it will clean it totally. And you get it out, and there are beans on the bottom of that thing, or lasagna, or leftovers from some casserole, and you think, you know, that, that junk didn't come off of there. And so what do you have to do? You have to scrub it. Why? Well, at least I hope you do. <laughs> don't invite me to eat out of your dish if you didn't scrub it. Well, it doesn't matter. You know, it went through the dishwasher. Who cares if there's junk from the last three meals on the bottom of it? No, to see, to be set apart, to be sanctified means that it doesn't have any germs in it, that it's been cleansed, it's been purified. And God has called us to do this. Why? So that we can be considered honorable vessels. We can be usable vessels. We can be prepared vessels, instruments for use. Now, the obvious application is we're to flee from evil and abstain from immorality, but there are some other applications too. Because those are the things we look at and say, oh, that's dirty, that's, that's dirty, that's bad, that's, that's not good. But, but let me just talk about some acceptable sins that find their way, that keep us, keep us from being sanctified and set apart for God's use. Number one is pride. Pride. By the way, false humility is just the other side of the coin of pride. Pride. Pride in who we are, pride in what we've done, pride in our talents, pride as a preacher, pride as a teacher, pride as a singer, 
pride in that the Lord is lucky to have us. You know, I, I, I meet Christians that can strut sitting down. I mean, some people think, uh, you know, when we sing, there's none like you, we're talking about them. <laughs> pride takes multiple forms. It puffs us up when we get a lot of attention. It rises up when we don't get enough attention. When we don't get the credit that we think we ought to do. Let me, here's a test of pride. What if you had worked all 35 days on the movie and we missed your names in the credit? How you responded to that would tell everybody whether you had pride or not. Because really what it was said is, I serve so that people would recognize me. Not that I serve so that this could be used of God. It's a good test. It's a good test. I, I, I have been blessed to be used by God to help some people in some number of things, and they've never thanked me for it. You know what? I could get real proud and say, you know, I'm going to tell you. After all I did for them, you know what that is? That's just pride speaking in another voice. Pride is an acceptable sin that keeps us from being used by God. Brian said it just a minute ago. God opposes the proud. He hates a haughty spirit. And pride can come in a number of forms. Secondly, lack of integrity. Lack of integrity. Dishonest in business. Dishonest in a transaction. Dishonest in your words. Dishonest on a report. Dishonest in relationships. A lack of integrity. Integrity is crucial for us if we want to be set apart, usable vessels for God. You never want somebody to say, great person, but. Thirdly, unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. Mark's gospel, he said, if you have anything against anybody... You see, unforgiveness builds walls between people. It builds walls between us and God. It breaks fellowship with God. It breaks fellowship with one another. And it causes us to begin to justify ourselves because when we don't forgive, in reality, what we're doing is we're being prideful because we think we can keep something and still be used by God. We can hold a grudge. We can be bitter and still be used by God. And we have to let it go. Now, how do we, as God's vessels, become clean? First of all, by the Word. By the Word, John 15. Just read John chapter 15. God's Word is a cleansing agent. Not only by the Word, but by confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9 and Psalms 51. God's Word and confessing sin washes us clean. It leaves no stain. When Jesus forgives us of sin, he doesn't forgive 99.9%. He forgives and he cleanses. But that comes by obeying the word and by being honest enough to confess the sin that we've committed. So confession and by being in the word, by being under the authority of God's word and by confessing sin. And by the way, it never stops. <laughs> That's why we take up our cross daily. That's why we die daily. Because sin has a way of attaching itself to us. 
A few years ago, if you'd gone to the, uh, not a few years ago, if you'd gone to the IMB with, if you'd gone to the IMB with us this past week, uh, you would have seen hand sanitizers everywhere. I mean, they were at every counter, they were at every door. Uh, they made a hospital look, look like a garbage dump. I mean, there were hand sanitizers everywhere. And the reason that they're there is because several years ago on the IMB retreat, somebody came back from overseas and brought a virus with them. And they had to quarantine the entire IMB retreat center and scrub it down and wash it down and sanitize it because people had to stay there for four or five days. They couldn't leave. Nobody could come in and nobody could come out until they got it cleansed so that it was safe for people to come in. It was a virus from overseas that could have quickly spread all around the Richmond area and could have gone further than that and people could have died. But they had to sanitize, they had to cleanse it. It's, it's not like, well, well we, we're through with that, thank God. <laughs> Put all the soap away. It's a, it's a constant reminder on those grounds. Make sure your hands are clean. Make sure your hands are sanitized. Make sure you've used something on your hands that kills the germs because people's lives are at stake. You see, this is not just a spring cleaning I, I fear that some of our folks think that refresh is the time when you get everything right with God. I'm going to kind of hold up my sin and, and keep going on and keep kind of living like on. And then at refresh, I'm going to get right with God. Sometimes you do that at a youth camp. Sometimes you do that at a disciple now. I can just kind of hold on live because every year at refresh, I get right with God. No, this is, you know, that, that's a spring cleaning mentality. You ever do spring cleaning? I mean, really spring cleaning, you ever do that? And you, you start finding things that you didn't know you had and you wondered why you had and you, you get up on a ladder and you go, I can't believe there's that much dust on top of that fan. I mean, how can a fan that's moving all the time have 14 inches of dust on it? I mean, it just <laughs> doesn't make any sense. You know, and, and, and you know how kids dust, when you have kids dust your house, they'll take a little dust broom, they just couldn't go around in front of the little knickknacks and everything else. But when it's time to really clean, you move everything off the shelf and you wipe it down clean and then you put everything back. Well, that just takes a long time, I know, but that dust is one of the reasons why your sinuses bother you all the time because you just think cleaning is just an occasional thing when it's supposed to be a daily thing. There's a daily cleaning and a cleansing which comes by the word and by confession of sin. Now, the master of the house lays down one condition for usefulness. That's that the vessel is clean. There should be a quote in your notes by John Stott. What we are to avoid is not so much the contact with false teachers as their error and their evil. See verse 19. To purify ourselves from these is essentially to purge their falsehood from our minds and their wickedness from our hearts and lives. Purity, then, purity of doctrine and purity of life is essential to being serviceable to Christ. Now, he tells us how to be clean vessels, and this is a key. First of all, we are to flee. That's negative. That's, the de that's our defensive. But then we're to pursue. That's the positive. That's our offensive. Now, isn't this interesting? Are you paying attention? resist the devil 
run from youthful lust. Isn't that odd? He didn't say run from the devil. He said resist him. He didn't say resist youthful lust. He said run from them. In other words, don't put yourself in a position and an environment where lust entraps you because those are the three things. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Those are the things that we're to run from. We're to resist the devil, but those other other three things are inside of us. That's not the devil. Well, the devil made me do it. No, you chose to do that. And so we're to flee from youthful lust. Now, let let me just give you some references on fleeing. Uh, Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, flee immorality. James chapter 4 and verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. From youthful lust, here's a great translation of that little phrase from youthful lust. Flee from self-assertion. Flee from saying, I think I know what I want to do. I want to do this. I want to act this way. I want to live this way. I want to respond this way. Flee from self-assertion, which is, after all, rebellion. When I assert myself over God's Word, then I've rebelled against God's Word, and I'm no longer a fit vessel to be used. Not only to flee, but to pursue. Let me give you the references. Romans 14, 19. We pursue the things which make for peace, and the building up of one another. 1 Corinthians 14.1, pursue love. 1 Timothy 6.11, but flee from these things, man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see God. Now look at what he says here in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace pursue it follow after it pursue righteousness integrity fairness justice faith trusting in god rather than trusting in ourselves love acting in the best interest of others instead of in the best interest of ourselves peace harmony unity and we are not to do this alone look at what he says with those who call on the lord from a pure heart in other words he says we're to flee we're to follow, and we're to fellowship. We don't live in isolation. The reason people get off on tangents and stray is because they live in isolation and they don't have accountability and iron's not sharpening iron and, and there's, a, there's a, a sense in which we begin to think we know all and we're the end of all. And so rubbing shoulders with other people and not pursuing this alone is a matter of keeping us healthy and clean and sharp. It is saying to ourselves, I can't do this by myself. I need to do this within the body. No soldier wins a war on their own. They fight as a regiment. They fight as a battalion. They're under command. They're under authority. They have their weapons ready and clean so that they can fight the most effective battle possible. And then observe the example, verse 23. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged 
with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Now the word here for bondservant is doulos, which is a, uh, the vessel is now referred to as a slave. By the way, one of the best books that you will read is John MacArthur's book called Slave. And he says one of the reasons we have a problem with submission to authority and one of the reasons we have a, a problem with lordship and with the cross and with discipleship is because we don't understand that word in the context that Paul used it, which is basically you're not your own. You don't get to do what you want to do. No slave in any system, in any culture, at any time in human history has ever been able to do whatever they want to do. Paul says, when you become a slave of Christ, a bondservant of Christ, then you obey your Lord and Master without question. Because you understand that the blessings come by obedience. We don't have a master that beats us and mistreats us, and therefore we should willingly surrender ourselves to him as bondservants. Now, he says avoid foolish and ignorant speculations. Why? They produce quarrels. Uh, verse 23, that word means avoid senseless controversies. Don't, don't have strife. Don't, don't get into quarrels. Now, there's a difference between strife and a controversy. Strife comes when my point is to win my argument and to prove that I'm right. Controversies do come because Jesus is controversial. You know that? Have you thought about that? I mean, when you say Jesus is the only way, that's controversial. But he says, you're not there to win an argument. You're there to win a heart. You're not there to prove that you're right. You're there to point them to God. There's a difference, by the way, than trying to prove to somebody, you know what, that person's a good arguer. They are right. No, that person has a good God, and he is right. And I've been wrong in the way I've thought about him. And, and so Paul is talking about this avoiding speculation. Now, what is it? What determines what's speculation? And remember, this is in the context of him training the person who's going to take his place. This is in the context of training a soldier. Here's what determines speculation. You go beyond Scripture, and you don't submit to rules of biblical interpretation. You don't submit to the context. It breeds conflicts when you break biblical boundaries and try to make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. And speculations always come because there's no authority. And God's Word is the authority. I'm not the authority. You're not the authority. God's Word is the authority. So you look at what he says we're supposed to do. We're not to be quarrelsome. We're to be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, and gentle correction of those in opposition. Now let's just look at those real quickly as we wrap this up. Able to teach. Now, he's talking to Timothy, but this letter is for all of us. All of us should be able to open God's Word and show somebody what this Word means and what it says. Not just those with the gift of teaching, but all of us should be able to explain the basic tenets of our faith, the basic doctrines of our faith, what it means to be saved. If somebody says, well, I don't believe you can be saved. I don't believe in eternal security. I believe you're saved, lost, saved, lost, saved, lost. I don't want to be in that ping pong game. I need to be able to explain 
what the Word says about eternal security. What does holiness mean? Holiness means you can't act however you want to act. You need to understand enough about holiness to be able to explain holiness to somebody who says, well, I know people who call themselves a Christian and they're blah, 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 blah. Well, they're not holy. Well, what does that mean? Explain it. Justification. I mean, there are simple things that we've all learned and we kind of rattle it off. Justification, just as if I've never sinned. There's a little more to it than that. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Okay, but there's a little more to it than that. And we have all, every one of us in this room, have been in enough Bible studies and enough Sunday school classes that we are without excuse that we can't explain 101 Christianity. And we ought to be, most of us, especially because we're here on Sunday night, ought to have enough knowledge of the Word of God. If we've been in this church as long as many of you have, we should go to 301 and 401 and be able to explain the truths of God's Word to anybody who is an honest searcher and trying to figure out what God's Word says. Wrong answer to say, I don't know, you ought to go talk to one of our staff. No, absolutely no. Only when, only when you have exhausted the extent of your personal study, then you say maybe you ought to go talk to a staff member. You say, well, I don't know. Well, get in the Bible, put down your dumb magazines, turn off your dumb TV shows, and get in the Word. I can't do your studying for you. No staff member is called to do his studying for you. You're called to study the Word yourself. You're going to be accountable to God. By the way, think about this. Warren Wiersbe told me this one time. Think about this. You're going to go to heaven with all the Bible knowledge that you've gained on earth. And some people are going to go to heaven, the ignorant brethren, because they don't know their Bibles. You're not going to suddenly get to, buy, get to heaven and all of a sudden you're going to know everything about the Bible. That's why there are different degrees and levels of heaven because some people are going to be closer to the throne than some of us are because we've never taken the time to get to know the letter. Why would God let you be at the right hand of the right hand when you didn't take time to ever look at his book to see how much he loved you and what he had to say to you? You need to think about your personal study of the Word of God and how it impacts your life. So he says we're to be able to teach. Patient, ready to take the necessary time for God to be your defense and ready to take the necessary time to know when to shoot and when not to shoot. A soldier has to be patient. There's a time to charge and there's a time to stand. There's a time to shoot and there's a time not to shoot. There's a time to attack and there's a time to wait. You have to be patient, gentle. Jesus was gentle and humble in spirit. He was meek. Doesn't mean he was weak. It means Jesus was gentle. He said, well, that's the problem with you, Pastor. You're just not very gentle. You've got that old prophet thing going to you. You know, you just, you just, you know, you cut without anesthesia. So did Jesus. Jesus was a lot harder on a religious crowd than I'll ever be. Because he looked him right in the eyeball and said, you can kill me, but you're still a whitewashed tomb of your father, the devil. I don't know if I've ever told any of you you're of your father, the devil. 
There's been a few people through the years that have been members of this church that I've thought about saying that to, but I don't know that I've ever said that to anybody, but Jesus did. And yet he was called gentle and humble of spirit. Why? Because to those that he needed to be harsh with, he was harsh, and to those that he needed to be gentle with, he was gentle. By the way, Jesus was never mean to sinners. He was tough on religion. He was never mean to sinners. I mean prostitutes and thieves. He was never mean to them. The people heard him and received him gladly. Why? Because he taught like other people. He didn't beat them to death with rules. He wrapped his arm around them in love. Patient, gentle. Verse 25. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Now this is obviously a reference to false teachers. But what's he saying? He's saying the goal of our being able to teach and patient and gentle is this, that by our response to false teaching, they come to repentance. They see the error of their ways. They see the difference in the truth and the words spoken in power and in truth and with love and just somebody coming up with a harebrained ideas. And you see this in two things. First of all, the response that's needed. And just by that, write Galatians chapter uh, 6 and verse 1. Brethren, in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. The response that's needed. You see there, but for the grace of God go I. And and I try to be strong when it comes to standing for the word, but I want to tell you something. I went to a seminary that at that time, my Old Testament professor did not believe in the authority of Scripture. He believed that any book printed by Broadman Press, which is what it was at that time, was just as inspired as any book of the Old Testament, which means, let's just put that, in, that statement in context. That means that my book, Courageous Living, according to him, has the same authority and power and lack of error in it as any book in the Old Testament. Now, as the author, I don't think so. I mean, I enjoyed writing it, but it's not an inerrant book. You see, I sat and had to deal with stuff when I served on a board with a man who was teaching in our seminaries that we were trying to get rid of that did not believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. But you know what? If I'd been in the wrong church under the wrong teaching, if I'd grown up influenced by liberalism and by socialism, I could be in the same boat. Here's what I know. If people that have liberal theology had heard all the gospel we've heard, they would have repented by now. Because truth sets people free. Not only that we respond, the response is needed, but the results we pray for, that they may come to their senses. Let me just give you two quick examples. David, 
David sinned. He slept with Bathsheba. He was, uh, had a hand in the murder of her husband. And I'm sure that for one year, David justified himself. David thought, you know, I'm the king. I've got a right to do whatever I want to do. But if you read the Psalms, you find that his body began to ache and his bones began to ache and his life began to dry up. Why? Because he was hiding sin and he was still going to the temple. He was to the tabernacle. He was still worshiping. He was still writing songs, but there was no joy in his heart. And then when Nathan confronted him, he repented. And he said, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Thou desires truth in the inner parts. In other words, David, I don't need a facade. I need truth inside you. The prodigal son. Prodigal son's a picture of man rebelling against a, a loving father who's given us everything we ever need. And then we reach out and we say, God, I want everything I want and I want to live however I want to want, want to live. And one day we end up in a pig pen and we're covered with stench of this world and we come to our senses. That's what Luke 15 says. And he came to his senses and said, man, it's better for a slave than it is for me. I'm going to go back to my father's house. He came to his senses. What do we do? Why do we preach the truth? Why do we stand for truth? Why do we stand for the word of God? Why do we love people? Why do we try to teach and be patient and guide people in the word of God so that they will come to their senses and say, oh, that's it. Every one of us knows somebody in the Christian faith is off track on something. It may be the person sitting in the seat next to you. It may be you. could be me. And so in the context of Paul writing to Timothy, he's also writing to the larger body, and he's saying, get clean, stay clean, abide in the truth, stay in the Word, stay clean, because there, because there are going to be moments in your life when I'm going to put you in a situation where you can rescue somebody who's going down the wrong road. But if you're not clean, you may follow them. And you may go into a ditch with them because you're not clean before me.